0: Good morning, listeners, and I hope today finds you well. My name is Wilson McCoy with the College Hills Church of Christ here in Lebanon, Tennessee, and I want to thank you for tuning in today and listening to this weekly radio broadcast. As you may or may not know, this weekly broadcast is available every Sunday here on 1FM, but also it's available early every week on our church's podcast channel and so, if you are not able to listen to this on Sunday, that's okay. There's also an opportunity for you to listen to it early in the week once it's downloaded onto our church's podcast. And so, if you would go to our local account, CH Church, and you search CH Church in your iTunes account, then you will find the College Hills Church podcast. You can also search College Hills Church and should be able to find it that way as well. We're trying to create a variety of opportunities for people to get engaged with our congregation during this season of uncertainty. And even though we're hopefully moving back to some normalcy, we're not quite there yet, and so we're going to continue to offer all of these different ways to engage I would also recommend that you go to our website, collegehills.org, and there you can also find more information about our on-campus meetings and our online gatherings as well. You can also find links to the weekly radio sermon and the weekly pulpit sermon there as well. Again, trying to create a variety of ways for individuals to connect during this strange season, but want to thank you for listening in today. We started at the beginning of the year, a new sermon series that we are continuing with, even though we're a bit away from the beginning of the year. We're still in this series that we're calling All Things New, Finding Newness in 2021. And the hope of this series is to begin our new year with a mindset of newness. And not just a mindset, but also to encourage us to live a new kind of life in this new year. To not just think new things, but also to practice some new things that are shaped and informed by our faith. And today's passage, I think, is a great combination of both of those new things, a new way for us to think, a new mindset, and a new way for us to think about how we want to live in this new year. So today we're going to be in Matthew 25, 14 through 30. For the kingdom of heaven is like a man going on a journey who summoned his slaves and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two talents, to another one talent, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. The one who had received the five talents went off at once and traded with them and made five more talents. In the same way, the one who had the two talents made two more talents. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Then the one who had received the one talent also came forward saying, Master, I knew that you were a harsh man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did not scatter seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master replied, You wicked and lazy slave. You knew, did you, that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I did not scatter? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers and on my return. I would have received what was mine with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one with the ten talents. For to all those who have, more will be given." And they will have an abundance. But from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. As for this worthless slave, throw him into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Dear God, thank you so much for today. Thank you for these parables of Jesus that continue to speak to us and raise questions of us and lead us into a deeper understanding of your kingdom. And I pray today as we wrestle with this passage and parable of Jesus that you would give me the gift of preaching and teaching and that you would give us all the gift of open hearts, that we would hear your voice and we would be transformed by it more into the image of your Son, Jesus. And it's in His name that we pray. Amen. Several years ago, I spent time with a man that I respect a great deal, and I respect him because he is a man of deep faith and spirituality, and I wanted to spend some time with him because I was hoping to gain some wisdom and insight from him. I wanted to meet with him in order to learn from him about his journey of faith. And I still remember the day that I showed up into his office with a yellow notepad of paper and a few pens. I went prepared to take notes and learn from his practice of faith. After a few minutes of informal conversation, he began to ask me some questions. And as he asked more and more questions, I became more and more confused. I thought the conversation was supposed to be going in the other direction. So eventually, I stopped him, and I asked why he was asking me so many questions. I told him that I was hoping to learn from him about his practice of faith and his spirituality. I wanted to start with him, not me. And after he listened, there was a pause, and then he said something along the lines of this. Wilson, we cannot talk about my relationship with God until we talk about your relationship with God. We cannot talk about my practice of faith without first talking about how you view God. We need to start there before we start with anything else. And in that moment, I was even more convinced that I needed to spend time with this man because I thought I knew where we needed to start the conversation with him. But he knew a better starting place. He knew of a more foundational and fundamental starting place with God. And I could not help but think of that experience as I wrestled with our text for today. Because as I began wrestling with this parable of Jesus in this passage, I thought, when I first began to read it, that I knew exactly where to start the conversation regarding this parable. But the longer that I wrestled with it, the more I realized that I was being guided to a more foundational and fundamental starting place. Because for so long, you see, when I've read this parable of the talents, I have always been convinced That the starting place was with me. That the parable is fundamentally a story about me being responsible. Jesus tells us a parable this morning about a master who is going away on a journey. But before he leaves, he gives out talents or money to three of his servants. To the first, he gives five talents. To the second, he gives two. And to the third, he gives one. He leaves for a long time, and while he's gone, the servants each treat their money in different ways. The first two go and work with the money, and they double it. The third goes and he buries his one talent in the ground. And when the master returns, he meets back up with each of these servants. The first two show him what they did with their money, and he rejoices with them. But the third one comes along, and when he tells the master what he did, the master is perplexed, and he takes the one talent from the man, gives it to the one who made the most money, and throws out that third servant. And we hear this story, and it seems pretty straightforward. Jesus is talking about himself leaving soon, and so he's giving his disciples instructions on what they are to do when he's gone, and So we think it's a story, reminding us to be responsible and work hard and to not be lazy. And if you're in the middle of a capital campaign, it's an especially good parable to talk about, right? You can see the slogan now, give or be thrown out to where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Very catchy. And that's where I've always assumed I should start the parable with me, with my gifts, my work, my talents. Because it does seem like Jesus is talking about us, right? About our responsibility, our stewardship, our gifts. And yet, I'm not so sure anymore that is where we should start when reading this parable. I believe Jesus is inviting us with this story to a more foundational and fundamental starting place. Because I'm convinced that this parable is not just one that is fundamentally about us, but one that is fundamentally about God. In fact, I think this is where Jesus wants us to start with start most, if not all, of his parables. Because these parables that Jesus tells are giving us glimpses into the kingdom of God. Jesus tells us these stories to let us know what God's reign and rule are like. In other words, he tells us these stories to tell us about the one who is reigning and ruling. When we read these parables, we are so often forced to ask this question, who is God? What is the character of God? What is this God like? What is this ruler like? What is this one in charge like? Exactly. These are the kinds of questions that rise to the surface when we read all of these parables of Jesus. And you cannot help but read our parable today without posing this same kind of question. But you can't read this parable this morning without asking, just who is the master in this story? What is this master really like What is this one in charge like exactly? And to answer the question, we often jump to the end of the story, verse 30, and we try to answer the question there, right? We jump to the end of the story where the master casts out the servant, and we just assume that the master is a tyrant. We assume he's this dictator-like figure who cleans house when he doesn't get his way. If he does not get what he wants, then you get the boot. If he doesn't like the returns, then you get kicked out. And before we know it, if this is the guiding verse for us in how we envision the God revealed in this story, we end up with a God who looks a lot like a angry auditor tracking every single move we make. And for many of us, this is the very view of God that we live with. And We're scared of this God. But after wrestling with this parable, I'm not so sure that is the best reading of this story. I'm not so sure that it's the picture of the Master or of God that we're supposed to see because a lot happens in this story before we get to that closing verse 30. In fact, I think it's the opening scene of this parable that may be the one we most need to see. Because in those opening verses, we read what may be the most important detail in the whole story. We read there that the master gives his servants five, two, and one talent. Now, do you know how much a talent is? A talent is about 15 years of wages, 70 pounds of gold, So this master, with no named motivation or instruction, just gives his servants 75 years of wages, 30 years of wages, and 15 years of wages. Now let me put this in modern-day Lebanon terms. According to a recent census, the average yearly income of our town is $40,000 dollars. So this guy, this master, basically hands over $3 million, $1.2 million, and $600,000 to each of these three individuals. So even if you're the one talent guy, you still have the equivalent of $600,000 given to you. And if that's not a lot of money to you, then you and I should be friends, Because all three of these servants are given very lavish gifts. And the extravagance of the master doesn't stop there in the first verse. He gives them an abundance of time to do whatever they want to with the money. Then, when he returns and meets up with the first two and finds out that they did something with the money, he affirms them, good and faithful he calls them. And He calls them into an even deeper shared joy with Him. And so, for the first ten verses of this story, everything the Master does is full of grace, abundance, lavish gifts, joy, happiness given to the servants. But we can feel the tension, right? Because if we zoom in on the other end, then the master seems to be a cruel, hard man. But if we zoom in on the beginning, then we see him as a generous and gracious man. And you can already feel that question beginning to rise to the top, right? Then just what is this master like? Just what is this one in charge like? Just who is this God that we meet in this parable? And I believe how we answer that question will make all the difference in the kind of story we tell with our lives. In fact, I think it's one of the central things this parable is doing. It's showing us just what our lives will look like based on how we answer that very question. Because there are two very different stories that are being lived out in this parable. One is a false story and one is a true story. The false story being played out is one of fear that leads to burying and hiding. The true story is one of faith that leads to sharing and risking. Now, on the one hand, you have this false story of fear that leads to burying and hiding. You have the story of the third servant who was so overcome with fear of his master that he decided to do nothing with the amazing gift of grace given to him. He buried it and hid it. Even though everything in the story up to this point is revealed to him, a master who is gracious, lavish, and generous, this servant still perceived his master as harsh and cruel. And because he misunderstood the nature of the master, he misunderstood the nature of the gift. And we know he misunderstood the nature of the master based upon how his master responds to him when he finds out he buried the gift out of fear. He poses a question to the servant, revealing both both the servant's false assumption about the master and his irrational behavior. The master basically says this, If I were this kind of person you assume that I am, harsh and cruel, then you should have at least put my gift in the bank where it could have gained minimal interest. The master's question reveals what happens when we live by fear. We don't even live. We bury the grace of God in our lives and we end up burying ourselves. We don't just play it safe. We don't play at all. We are so scared of God that we end up missing out on the lavish grace of God all around us. And while we may scratch our heads at the end of the story with the master sending him away, we cannot miss the fact that this servant is excluded only after he refused to be included. The gift of the master is taken away only after the servant refuses to do anything with the gift. The tragedy is that the servant is swimming in grace and doesn't even realize it because that's what fear does to us. The end of the story is simply the master giving the servant the reality he created for himself. The false story of fear leads us to bury and hide the grace of God, and we bury ourselves. But on the other hand, you have this true story of faith that leads to sharing and risking. You have a story of these first two servants who took the amazing gift of the Master and did something with it. They shared and risked with the gifts given The Master's response reveals what happens when we live by faith. We really live. We recognize the graciousness of the Master and realize He's the kind of Master we can trust. We acknowledge that we are swimming in grace and gifts and we do something with it. We end up sharing the goodness and grace of God in our lives and we are caught up into deep joy. We end up Risking and sharing what God has given, and we end up really living. What made these first two servants good and faithful was not that they doubled their money, but that they did something with it. They tried, they shared, they risked. The master does not affirm the doubling. He affirmed their faithfulness. They live lives of faith in their master, not in fear of him. And it is that story of faith that tells a better story with our lives. The false story is one of fear that leads to burying and hiding. The true story is one of faith that leads to sharing and risking. So, By which story are you going to live? Which God are you going to choose to believe in? But before we answer that question, I want us to hear this parable in a different way this morning. Because so often when I close a sermon, I typically place the focus on the individual. And I want... That to be a question that you consider for your own individual life. By which story am I going to live? Which God am I going to believe in? But this morning, I also want us to hear this as an invitation to our church community, as a collective group of people. By which story are we going to live? Which God are we going? believe in. A few years ago, a friend of mine told me a story about a church consultant who went to visit a church in the Northeast. The church called this consultant to help them figure out what to do next as a congregation. They were an older congregation, and they were wrestling with what was going to happen next because they looked into their future and realized They were very likely going to die out within the next decade. They had a lot of money in the bank, but they didn't have a lot of years to spend it. And so after many meetings and conversations, the consultant looked at the leaders of the church and told them this advice. He said, I think that if you're going to die, then you need to die well. And then he posed this question, what would it look like for you to die well as a church? And so the church decided to wrestle with that question. What would it look like for us to die well? And they decided that if they were going to go out, then they were going to go out with a bang. They knew that they had a lot of finances in place, and so they decided they were going to share and risk with it. They decided to throw a huge party for their neighborhood. They brought in inflatables, a band to play music, lots of great food, and they invited the entire neighborhood. It was a party. And little did they know that one of the neighbors happened to be an apartment complex right across the street. And in that set of apartments were a bunch of single moms and kids. So on the day of the party, those young families made their way across the street, and all of those older members began to talk with those young moms and even to their younger children. The older church members became like grandparents in that one afternoon, and these moms and kids became like kids and grandkids. They talked and laughed and partied all afternoon together. You know what happened the next week? Those young moms and kids showed up to their church. They showed up again and again, and before that church realized it, there was new life and grace at work in their congregation. The church had new grace breathed into it. The very moment it decided to be Faithful and generous with the grace given to it. Now, I tell that story for a couple of reasons. One, I want us to let our imaginations be sparked about what it might look like for us as individuals, but also as a community of faith, to live by faith and share and risk with the grace given to each of us, to all of us. But the other reason I want us to hear that story today is because I never want our church to become a church that waits until a crisis happens to do something courageous. I want us to be the kind of church that lives not by fear in God or even points to that image of God, but to be a church who by faith we live in a good God and we point others to that image of God. I want us to be the kind of church that lives not by bearing the grace and gifts of God, but by acknowledging and sharing the grace and gifts of God in our lives, with our lives. I want us to be the kind of church that lives not by retreating from the world, but by being willing to take risks for the sake of the world. I want, I want us to be a church who lives a better story, a story of faith that leads us to sharing and risking with the grace that God has given to all of us. And when we do that, our story will begin to look more and more like the story of Jesus. The story of a man who lived his life deeply rooted in faith in a good, gracious God. And because of that, he shared and risked for the world. So who knows? Who knows what might happen if we chose to believe in that kind of master, who knows? Who knows what kind of better story we might tell together? Amen.